Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Life with GDPR, a podcast where I work in conjunction with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and a well-known data privacy, data protection expert. In this podcast, Jonathan Armstrong and I began a three-part exploration of some of the key lessons learned from the first 12 months of live GDPR. In this podcast, we consider the following issues. Number one, do you have a plan for a data breach? Number two, do you know not only your own data, but do you know the third parties you work with and how they store data? And number three, what's the team you need to assemble for data privacy, data protection in the post-GDPR world? Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of Life with GDPR. Uh, We're going to start a multi-part series where we're going to take a look at some of the lessons learned over the past uh, 6 to 12 months or so uh, around GDPR uh, by going through uh, a list of uh, cases, enforcement actions, and general information that Jonathan has put together for us. So, Jonathan, first of all, uh, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you. So, Jonathan, uh, we're going to take up three topics today, uh, which uh, we're generally going to be, number one, have a plan. Number two, know your data and know your third parties. And number three, assemble your team. So what do you have for us under category one of have a plan? Yeah, well, thanks very much, Tom. As you said, in this series, we're going to try and give 10 top tips that are, if you like, a boil down of those uh, cases, specifically those looking at data breaches that we've had over here in Europe under GDPR. And as a recap, of course, regular listeners will know we started to see some of the cases come through, probably around about 400-ish, some uh, of which are public, some of which not, that have have led to some sort of formal resolution so far. So uh, as far as have a plan is concerned, well, um, it's sort of obvious, isn't it? But I think a lot of people don't have a plan for dealing with a data breach, and some of them don't have a plan for dealing with crises At all, I've had a couple of cases where people have dusted off year 2000 response plans and said, you know, will this work as a plan for responding to a data breach? And, of course, uh, it's unlikely. It's it's better than nothing, and we've certainly used it when it's been better than nothing. But you do need to have a proper plan, and it's a little bit like fire breaking out in buildings, that you just have to prepare for these things because the consequences are great, as as we know, up to 6% of global revenue if we have a data breach and we don't report it in time. So businesses have to get to the mentality of thinking when, not if. And whilst we say have a plan, for some businesses, that's going to be two plans. It could be a simple plan that's distributed to all employees, and it could be a more complex plan that the compliance team the IT team, the information security team, the communications team maybe agree between them. As far as the plan that all employees see is concerned, then obviously you have to keep that simple. I quite like uh, explaining to clients that 
again, it's similar to a buyer. If I check into a hotel, they don't give me a 65-page document to read on the fire evacuation. Everybody knows that there's likely to be something on the back of the hotel room door, which will give me clear instructions on how to get out of the building. And if you've ever had to get out of a, a tall building in a hurry and a fire alarm, which I have on many occasions, thankfully, um, usually uh, a, a test or because somebody's burnt something in the kitchen, then you know that often fire alarms happen in uh, at three o'clock in the morning when you might be at your best, Tom, but I certainly am not. So it has to be really simple because a lot of data breaches happen outside of office hours as well. You have to understand human dynamics. Often, if it's complex and people are in a stress situation, then uh, they will their brains won't function properly. If you give them a lot of data or tell them that they have to download it from the intranet or whatever, then they're always going to be obstacles. And the great irony, of course, is we see a number of clients have um, policies and procedures for reporting a lost laptop, which basically involve you having a laptop to be able to access them. So you've got to make it clear what you expect people to do, keep it as simple as possible. Things like wallet cards, paper-based cards, you know, the size of a business card to go in people's wallets might be a good idea, particularly if you expect them to report lost equipment under that process. So the important thing, I think, is to have a, a plan and also rehearse it as well, Tom, just as hotels rehearse fire drills from time to time then you have to rehearse your data breach plan as well. Jonathan, I was taken by your um, uh, remarks around the, the having not only two plans, but the first plan to actually uh, be as simple as possible, yet uh, broad enough to cover uh, literally uh, thousands of different employees who could be situated literally across the globe. How, how uh, would you suggest that be communicated? I think, again, it's got to be communicated as clearly as possible. I wouldn't, uh, ideally, you wouldn't refer to a data breach because that almost, uh, we know that that gives people strain in that they're working out whether it's a breach or not. I think you want to make it as neutral as you can, call it an incident or a data incident. Obviously, it needs to be in simple language that everybody can understand. It isn't a document that's written by lawyers for lawyers. It isn't a document that's written uh, for, um, you know, academic excellence. It's a document that's written in, in simple terms so the people whose first language is in English can understand it uh, easily. And if you have a workforce where their English isn't great, then obviously you're likely to translate it as well. Also think how you're communicating to people from different demographics. If you've got a predominantly millennial workforce, then you might want to support it with a short film, for example, rather than just have a written document. And as I said, think about when people are going to access this plan. Most of the data breaches we see involve an incident outside of office hours. So think how people are going to access this uh, you know, you know, when, they're, um, when they're at home. I mean, for example, we have a tool that uh, clients of ours will use to report breaches, and that will work across all sorts of different medium, 
depending on who the organization is. So if it's a retail environment, you'll be able to report a, a breach through an EPOS system. People can phone a help desk. They can uh, use uh, SMS or, or whatever that might be, but make it easy for people to report incidents. And Jonathan, on your second plan, which is uh, perhaps a little bit more detailed and for a higher level uh, of employee or the, the response team, uh, would you suggest a very detailed plan or some general guidelines so that there's maximum flexibility? Yes, I think the latter. And I think it's a plan that will likely evolve. So when we get to step 10, spoiler alert, we're going to suggest that people review incidents and see the lessons they can learn. And from our experience, that's often a good time to revisit the plan. So I think make it process driven, don't make it technology driven. I've seen people um, with, with with some sort of detailed, almost like standard operating procedure type documents, which are quite hard to read. And of course, you don't want to set um, an unrealistic bar. Um, whilst you've obviously got to aim to respond very quickly and within 72 hours if GDPRs uh, involved, you still want it to be a procedure that's flexible enough to adapt. Remember, of course, the data breaches affect hard copy paper as well as electronic. So don't make it uh, the domain of the uh, uh, of the IT specialists solely, because a lot of the most severe data breaches involve hard copy data, you know, diary. Jonathan, uh, perhaps we could move on to uh, point uh, uh, or lesson learned two of know your data and know your third parties. Certainly, uh, know your third parties, I think, is going to be something all compliance officers, whether they're in a corruption compliance officers, export control compliance officers, or any money laundering compliance officers uh, are going to be aware of this. But uh, why is it a little bit different in the data protection realm? And then why is it so important to know your data? So I, I think um, one of the issues that we see with many organizations is what you might call uh, the disaggregated world. So it used to be relatively simple, I think, for major corporations to know the data that they have either on their employees. It was held and hosted in-house. But now, of course, that's not the case. Many organizations are using all sorts of vendors or platforms to hold data on their behalf. So if I look at HR data, that might be on a data that might be on Salesforce, etc. So we depend on so many more other businesses and that will often cause an issue when their security falls down. So for example, I'm involved in a case at the moment with a vendor who has a lot of data on my client's employees and it's clear that they're not taking GDPR and data privacy and data security as seriously as my client is. So how do you find out where the data is, where it is on their systems? How do you make them responsive? Oftentimes, I think you're going to have to include them in your plans as well. And that might not just be saying, you know, who is our day-to-day contact that we can contact if we've got an issue, but looking at things like escalation, can we escalate to their senior management to get them to put more resource behind an investigation, et cetera, et cetera. And this is important even when the third party is a member of our group. 
So we've seen this in Equifax, for example, where there uh, has been an investigation just pre-GDPR into Equifax's UK subsidiary. And obviously, we all know about the uh, Equifax breach in the US, but the UK regulator said to Equifax UK, you should have known that there were problems at your parent company. And even if it's your parent company, you have to have a proper contract with them. You have to have proper processes and procedures in place to make sure that they do what you ask them to as far as data security and privacy is concerned. So we're going to have to look at where data is. We're going to have to look at things like data transfer. And then I think maybe my last point on this, Tom, is we also have to look at the businesses that we're acquiring. Obviously, in the UK, one of the biggest cases is the um, UK data regulator's notice of intention to find Marriott because of issues that they inherited when they acquired Star with their rival. And uh, my understanding is that there are uh, some, there's some potential litigation over people who did investigations and uh, assisted in the due diligence. But of course, sometimes due diligence is quite challenging, particularly for organizations of the size of Marriott and Starwood, where there are antitrust considerations around sharing information, pre-acquisition, et cetera. So nobody's saying this is easy, but it isn't something that you can ignore. So you've got to know where your data is, who's hosting it, for you, and you've got to know who those third parties are and understand a bit about their processes. You really put a lot in there, Jonathan. Let me see if I can unpack uh, just a few <laughs> of your thought. I think we, we have to start with the basic proposition that you are only as strong as your weakest link. Uh, in terms of your data link in the anti-corruption and a money laundering and export control world, you might talk about third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties, and down the line. Agents, yeah. sub-agents, and sub-sub-agents. With data, do you typically have that uh, sort of subcontractual relationship or uh, or should, leaving aside the issue of whether they are actually doing it, should companies only uh, put data or send data to their direct contractual counterparties? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Tom. I mean, what should happen is if you're sending data to your direct contractual counterparty, then you should have a prohibition on them sending data elsewhere unless they've got your consent. But what you will find is that many of the larger providers have quite a complex structure. So you might be contracting with the U.S. entity, but they're then having the service delivered by an associated entity in the Netherlands or Luxembourg or Ireland. And then in turn, the data is going out to some low-cost destination like the Philippines or India or Romania. And oftentimes, you don't have that visibility that you should have be below the entity that you contracted with. So even if you're contracting with a large group, you need to say to them, you know, the data is going to be in X location handled by Y corporation in your group unless you tell us otherwise. And then the other complexity, of course, is as you alluded to, sometimes the entity we have contracted with is contracting other entities that are not part of their group. 
So if we look at helplines as an example, we, we've looked at the data flows with a well-known helpline provider. And you might contract with a US entity to deliver the helpline. But if the person who calls in asks for translation services, then in this case, the translation was uh, subcontracted to a UK-based entity. They then had a subcontractor based in Spain. But from then on, the Spanish entity, who my client didn't know the entity of until we started digging, was contracting with home workers all around the globe based on their availability, almost like a little auction system. So there was no way of knowing where data could end up. And obviously, that's likely to be sensitive personal data or special category data, uh, if ever a helpline's involved. But it also poses other risks to the corporation as well. You know, what's the value of that data if it got into the hands of people who were going to game uh, the corporation's stock? So all of these things are important. The, the UK regulator, for example, has said in the Equifax case, maybe it's helpful to quote her, multinational data companies like Equifax must understand what personal data they hold and take robust steps to protect it. Their boards need to ensure that internal controls and systems work effectively to meet legal requirements and customers' expectations. So she's as clear as she can be, really, I think, to say this is a board-level responsibility, and it really is that serious. So let me go to sort of part one of this two-part topic here for our second discussion point, which is know your data. Um, mm. Is that uh, – have you or has Cordery assisted companies in actually understanding what their own data is? And I say that because certainly in the anti-corruption, export control, and even anti-money laundering world, um, many compliance officers actually may not know what data their company has. And it could be because the data siloed. It could be because they're not in a corporate data lake. They're in various ponds literally across the globe. But how do you suggest someone think through the basic point of how, how do you know your own data? The GDPR way of doing it is to compile what's called an Article 30 log. So compile the types of data processing that's going on, where the data lives, etc. That's a, somewhat of a Herculean task. And I know a, a number of organizations where they've paid an outside consultancy to do that task, you know, sometimes using technology, sometimes using questionnaires to different bits of the business. And it's easy to spend a million dollars on that before you know what you've done. And the difficulty with that as well is it's a snapshot moment in time. You know, we have something in the UK called the Doomsday Book, which in the uh, in the uh, 11th century records who, owe, who owned land on a particular day and time. It's a fascinating historical record. But of course, it was a historical record the day after it was created. It's not been accurate now for, you know, whatever, 900 years. And it's similar in the online environment with Article 30 records. There's a huge task to keep them up to date because just as you found out where your data is, it's moved because 
a vendor has put it somewhere different or you've contracted with a different vendor or whatever. So to do this perfectly is probably impossible. But that doesn't mean to say that you ought not to try. And I think organizations have got much better at looking at where the data that's the most concern is. So looking at key vendors who are hosting employee data or customer data. And then they've also got better at looking at checks and balances. So they might say to the IT guys, if you're punching a hole in our firewall for a vendor to get access to corporate data, then make sure it's on this list, list of uh, critical suppliers if they're getting a lot of data. And it might be saying to the finance people, if we're creating a new vendor in the SAP system or our account system or whatever, and they look to be handling a lot of data, then let's make sure that they've gone through the proper processes. So it's about capturing where data is going at different stress points in the organization. Obviously, perfection isn't possible, but you can make an honest endeavor, I think, to try and find out where your uh, employee data and where your customer data is going. These sound like uh, actually uh, things that are start of a, of a revision to, or at least a start of a, of a good business process. So once again, we may see a regulatory uh, requirement driving a uh, actual pro- business process improvement, John. I think that's definitely right. And if you look at some of the areas where regulators have got involved, then they have uh, asked people to do that. You know, the PwC, for example, uh, recently were on the wrong end of an enforcement action in in Greece. And that's one of the things that the regulator seems to be looking for, you know, look properly at what you are doing with data and don't make assumptions. Jonathan, uh, on our third and final point in today's episode, uh, you have the notation, assemble your team. How do you think through assembling a data protection team? Well, I think that you need to look particularly in uh, data security response at having a team that covers most of the bases you'll need and meets and rehearses. And in some respects, it's a little bit like uh, the A-team that uh, I'm not sure whether it was a documentary or whether it was a fiction, uh, Tom, about... uh, about, um... (laughs) Really? You think that was a documentary, Mr. T? (laughs) Okay. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you know the difference between an Englishman and an American. Um, so there was that, um, the, the, you know, what does the A team teach us about breach response? Well, it, it teaches us that we often need a team of diverse individuals with different backgrounds and skills. And it teaches us, I think, that we often need to rehearse and know each other's strengths and weaknesses. And we do see that in data breaches as well. Often the data breach response team uh, we've seen tends to be comprised of like-minded individuals. You know, we've seen one where they had um, a, data, a global data breach response team of nine individuals. Eight of them were from the information security community, and they'd invited one lawyer who they knew. Now, that's unlikely to have the skill set that's needed when responding to a data breach. So for most organizations, it might involve somebody in HR, it might involve somebody in PR, a sort of 
um, you know, public-facing role. It might involve somebody who uh, deals with customer relationships. It will include people from IT and from corporate security. It will include people from legal as well. It's important that compliance has a seat at that table as well. So you need to look not only at the technical skills you'll need from an IT context, but things like PR rapid response. We know that the um, that the regulators particularly are looking at share price drop or stock price drop after data breaches. You know, in BA, for example, the stock price drop I think was about two percent when the regulator announced that. Uh, she was intending probably to find BA. So we know that you have to get out of the blocks quickly and respond quickly. And again, from our experience, you're going to have to rehearse the team so that they know each other's skills and weaknesses so that they can uh, fit in. And to give you one ridiculous example, we did a data breach simulation for a large US corporation and they were working in different teams. And we went and said to one of the teams, um, what progress have you made? And there were two guys on the team who said we were waiting to be introduced. And we said, well, hang on, uh, you're both, you both work in the same country for the same US multinational and you want us as external counsel to introduce the two of you before you'll work together. And they said, yes, in our country, that's uh, the proper thing to do. So we've not spoken to each other yet because we're not introduced. Now, it's a great thing that that was a rehearsal rather than a real breach. But you need to pick up these elements of dysfunctionality within the business and make sure that people work together properly as a team. They don't need a big black band, Tom. But that might help. Point really here, Jonathan, is, and, and perhaps this is outside this discussion point, some of the larger uh, data breaches uh, we have seen in the United States, the company has not been aware they were breached until weeks, perhaps months uh, mm. after the initial breach occurred. Does that really relate to um, the team, or is that another point that uh, you feel merits its own discussion? Yeah, most times I think it goes back to point one, not having a plan that people understand. So oftentimes the, the issue with delay is people know there's some sort of an incident, but don't work out that it's a breach. You know, we've got uh, a pre-GDPR case, for example, against TalkTalk, where the regulator got involved. Um, it involved a website compromise. An individual had rung their um, help desk and said, this looks to be a data breach. She got no satisfaction from that. She'd rung the regulator. The regulator rang up and said, this looks to be a data breach. The company effectively said, well, we'll work out whether it's a data breach or not. And they uh, eventually responded to the regulator and said, yep, yep, that is a data breach. We, we get that. The regulator says, you're out of time now. You've got time to determine whether it's a data breach or not. We've already decided it is. And whatever the consequences of the data breach, you're going to get a fine for the fact that you didn't make your mind up quickly enough. It was, it was obvious to us it was a data breach. You know, if, it, if it's got a trunk, he is and is grey, 
it's likely to be an elephant, deal with it as an elephant. So that wasn't the regulator's exact words, obviously, Tom. Um, so, so often the failure to report in time is connected either to um, the lack of initial report or a delay with the assessment. If it's a delay with the assessment, again, that's something that the right team can sort out. So, yeah, in part, assembling the right team can deal with some of those difficulties. Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time today, uh, but uh, I am greatly looking forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Life with GDPR, where we take up part one of a three-part exploration of some of the top lessons learned in the first year of GDPR. If you have any questions, you can email Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at cordery.com. I hope you'll join us again in our next episode where we take up part two in our three-part exploration of the top 10 lessons learned from GDPR in the first year of GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.